the idea that this war was launched to denazify Ukraine is a joke because it's really, if anything, I think just facilitating the actual Nazification. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. And if you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from around the country, do click the link that we always provide in our show notes. My name is Scott Schmidt, and I'm here alongside with my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Mr. Appel, I actually haven't really seen you much since our last recording. So how are you? Well, we do live in two different cities. Well, so, you know, uh... like talk to you, seeing your face, you know how it is. Yeah, I always got to clarify, the land acknowledgement is for Medicine Hat, not not for uh, up here in Edmonton. Uh, it's but, not the forgotten um, corner's fault that you fucking moved all around the province, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, again, if if we did a land acknowledgement for Edmonton, um, you know, it'd be a lot of land acknowledgements. But, you know, I... <laughs> um, um, uh yeah no I'm I'm doing well uh been a pretty uh wild week um I would say uh in Canadian politics and um me uh trying to frantically keep up with all the developments of it but yep. um no yeah how you been what, what what have you been up to since we last uh spoke uh, not too much. Just kind of wound down the summer. Had a, another good camping trip this past weekend. Um, but the like the news moving this next few weeks. So um, we kind of realized Colin and I that like if we don't personally like focus on the like history and shit that's in there, like it's not gonna happen. Like there's like you know how it is. There's nobody left to do that stuff and. Essentially, it was like what's not packed and ready to go is going to get turfed. And so we've been going through nooks and crannies, filing cabinets, of which there are 60 million, um, and just pulling out photos and old things that we can uh, take to the Esplanade, to the library for archiving. Um, So a lot of that recently. Um, Yeah, I've been pretty good. Um, Nonetheless, I've been good, but, you know... um, Work's been lots like since uh, Ryan left and what's not. So it's, it's been, oh, yeah, I meant to text Ryan to yeah. congratulate him on his new gig. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Newspaper industry is um, crumbling. Yeah. yeah and, and it's uh, not like I'm like going out of my mind every day trying to find another job, but like when something comes up that you're like, Ooh, that would be like a really cool thing. That's, along the lines of the reason why I originally got into journalism so many years ago. So um, anyway, but um, it's fine. You know, it's still, it's still a job still keeps me 
Because you've been at the news like 20 years, right? Me, no, 13 now. Yeah, 13. But Colin's been there 17. So, yeah, the two of us, 30 years combined, it's... It's been sad around there the last few days because like we're taking shit down off the walls and packing it up and it looks like you're it almost looks like you're closing down right which of course we aren't but it feels like that a little bit so there's a little well uh, you know one step closer to that unfortunately I, I mean um, I'm sure that's true um but uh you know I've been hearing that since I started there in 2010 so we'll see um anyways uh we have a lot to talk about today like we have a um, I think like the subject that we're in, just before I let you introduce our uh, uh, esteemed guest that we have today, um, I wanted to just like mention like we're so the topic that we're getting into is um, a lot of the stuff that's gone on this last week with the um, Waffen SS uh, uh, former Nazi soldier that was uh, given a standing ovation in parliament invited by speaker Anthony Rota, who's now no longer the speaker and a lot has happened and it's really given us an opportunity to get into some of the nuances that are surrounding all of these discussions because I think the way that stuff like let's say the Russia uh, invasion of Ukraine the way it's portrayed over here it's always we're, we're always taught things even historically from wars that it's you know, side versus side, and it's good versus evil, and you sort of pick the side, and no matter what happens on that side, you're in support of that, no matter what happens on the other side, it's, that's the enemy, and, and it becomes very black and white, and, and I think that um, Ukraine's entire history from the Second World War to now is very much uh, sort of exists in this gray, like nuanced middle ground, literally the middle ground in some cases of things. And so there's a lot of different um, things about that, that I, and so we have a a opportunity to talk about some of that. And from Jeremy and my standpoint to learn about that as well, because I think we're uh, not much uh, more educated on this than most of any of our listeners would be as far as um, we grew up in a world where we're not really taught nuances of history either. And so a lot of people are playing catch up. Does that make sort of sense to what we're doing today, Jeremy? Yeah, I would say so. I think I probably know more than the average person about well, we know particular that. aspects of this. Insert stuff. topic here. <laughs> well, well, just because, I, you know, I think from my Jewish upbringing, it, it's always been understood to me that uh, countries that were under no- Nazi occupation or did have uh people who willfully collaborated with them and that a lot of these people came to canada after the war at the same time it was hard for jews to get in actually my grandmother was one of the first jewish refugees who uh came into canada yeah Uh, she lucked out because her husband was a uh um uh, an air force veteran um so yeah i mean the history is sort of has always been the background I, I guess of my consciousness, but of course yeah. in the past, um, of course in the past year and a half, but also even leading up to that, it's become a much um, bigger issue uh, here in Canada. Um, but um, we've got a very, we, we've got a huge guest actually on today. Um, you know, we've hired differences in the past, but I'm really happy she's agreed to come on the show and hash them out. Our guest today has been an incredibly valuable resource in unveiling the dark side of Ukrainian nationalism that was on display in the Canadian Parliament a couple of weeks ago. 
Moss Robson is a New York-based researcher who runs the Bandera Lobby blog on Substack. There, he draws connections between powerful Ukrainian diaspora organizations, like the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and the glorification of Nazi collaborators. He's also a YouTuber now, uh, hosting the Bandera Lobby show. It just aired its second episode this week, which was a timely interview with uh, University of Alberta historian John Paul Himka. Welcome to the show, Moss. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be joining you today. Yeah. Uh, was the intro good? I really, We normally read it to the guests. Before, oh, yeah. But... No, thank you. Thank you for that oh, yeah. introduction. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah. No, but anyways. This is both the most and the least pre preparation we've ever done for an episode. Well, that's yeah. how it works. How you like, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to strike the balance between um, sort of winging it and being natural right. and not over-preparing. Because my interview with Himka, I was so nervous because I was trying to prepare. And then it was like, I could only read from the script and it's hard. It's funny so. because your interview with Himka is what took my nerves away from this because the way you interviewed him was, I was like, oh, okay. So he's asking some questions that I would probably ask that guy too. So I mm. felt a little bit less uh, intimidated going into a subject that honestly, like I wanted to give myself a foundation on, on what you did and, and some of the, um, you know, Def definitions of some of the words behind some of these organizations and whatnot but i wanted to not have much more than that of a foundation coming in because i want to try to come at this from what i think most of our listeners are going to come at this from is we just unless you dig into this on your own and that's always a uh you know you, you, you're scared to tell anyone to go do their own research quote unquote unless you're digging into this on your own um this stuff isn't this kind of stuff isn't just available to anyone and we don't we don't get any nuance of the subject uh in Canada so that's uh we're really happy to have you here um to break down some of these things that you do and when we have someone on the forgotten corner before we really get into the the topics at hand we really want to find out about about who this this person is because um so far our listeners probably could think you might be might be in brooks alberta for all they know but you're actually uh in uh the big apple right and like you're uh working out of new york and um so tell us a little about who you are where'd you come from originally um and sort of like we'll get to the timeline of how you ended up being so invested in this subject well, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, and then um, around college, I after I ended up in New Paltz, New York, um, which is about an hour, hour and a half north of New York City. And um, since about 2014 to 2019, I kind of increasingly fell down this rabbit hole as a historical research project interested in the hidden history of the OUN um, or organization of Ukrainian nationalists, particularly in the United States and its, you know, relationship with the CIA and other Cold War actors. And um, I thought I was nearing the end of that journey when I went to visit the grave of Mikola Labed in New Jersey. And, um, he was the so the CIA supported a faction of the OUN, which maybe we'll come back to. And um, so I went to visit his grave and I realized that 
he was buried in a special section of the cemetery um, for that he helped design for himself and other veterans of the UPA or Ukrainian insurgent army. Um, I think a lot of people, when they saw Yaroslav Hunka being um, celebrated in parliament um, and introduced as a someone who fought against the Russians, quote unquote, for Ukrainian independence during World War II, would have, as I did, assumed that he was an UPA veteran, not one of the uh, Galician division. But um, so anyways, so the section of the cemetery was actually not just UPA veterans, but turned out many, if not most, if not all of them, were those who were supported by the CIA. And so um, I think I hadn't ever written anything about this stuff before. So that um, in wanting to write an article about this, I did a little deeper digging and I came across um, a newspaper article somewhere about one of these people speaking at a Ukrainian summer camp in Ellenville, New York. And it occurred to me, um, I should look up where that is. And then I find out it's on the other side of the mountains outside my window. And that turns out to be uh, the site of the oldest uh, Bandera monument in the world. And so at that point, I thought this was just a historical thing. I didn't realize that um, the OUN still exists. And so from there, I kind of almost overnight went from being an amateur historian to an amateur journalist. And um, so over the past four years, I've been uh, trying to map out this contemporary Banderite network and its influence and um and since russia's invasion last year i've been more focused um well increasingly focused on the azov movement which in the past i've tried to defer to others but now you see representatives of azov this neo-nazi movement it is a neo-nazi movement despite what other people might tell you um coming to the united states or several represent delegations have come to the U.S. since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And um, so for me, yeah, it's been this journey that's kind of started in 2014, but then got really serious around 2019. And um, I would like to move on with my life. I don't want to spend <laughs> the rest of my life focused on this, but I have to, I feel like I have to see this through. And, oh my God, um, you're going to be that like, you're going to be like someone's like wild, like crazy old grandpa that just won't let the subject go one day. Like he's just like dedicated his whole life and you'll be like living in some fucking like farm somewhere that nobody like, you know, it's all protected by it's gonna be hilarious. Anyway, well, I, I'm, I'm currently in denial about that, which is why I've not learned <laughs> Ukrainian. Sorry. But yes. no, but if when I accept that that's my fate, I will actually fine because i don't consider myself an expert but then maybe i really will become an expert learn ukrainian i can do a lot more research and then i, yeah. I will be truly uh destined to become that person yeah nope. i think the past decade or, or a, a bit under a decade has been where a lot of us have been, realized oh this is like a really important uh country you know ge geopolitically although it always has been throughout the cold war and even before that with like uh great you know european power uh politics really i i think when russia uh invaded the last time uh in you know annexed crimea that was really uh when a lot of people including uh you know people who overnight um suddenly became ukraine experts which is not the case you've actually done your homework um um have have really uh taken an interest in this country and I, I think rightfully so but how how do you 
get interested uh, specifically in, in in Ukraine, right? You mentioned uh, visiting this uh, UPA veterans grave. How, you, how like did that said, happen? You, like you said, it was like a research topic, right? So like, did you pick it out of a hat? Like, why did you specifically pick that? And then like, you always end up down the rabbit hole, but why did you pick that as the starting point even? Um, I guess. So when the Maidan started i didn't really know anything about ukraine and so i basically you know cheered it on on facebook in mm -hmm. high school and i feel like i even remember dismissing or disregarding an article i read at the time when this was all going about neo-nazis in ukraine and i forget what the turning point was but i mean maybe it was an interview that stephen f cohen gave with democracy now maybe it was the massacre that happened in odessa may 2014 but at a certain point, I came to realize that the Western media was lying about this. And um, and then I guess um, I was also starting college then. So I was getting, I was, you know, distracted. But um, I, I guess eventually just decided. Also, I think that was, for me, a period of sort of, uh, dare I say, radicalization politically and so for me, this idea that Barack Obama was supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine was this blew your yeah. How do you wrap your and, brain around that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I have a more nuanced view of that now, but um but the I came across among other things, there was an interview that Russ Ballant did with the nation. He wrote this book nineteen eighty in the late nineteen eighties called Old Nazis, New Right and the Republican Party. He was the you mentioned my YouTube show. Um, I wanted him to be my first guest for the reason that he um, really, I, um, among others, was one of the people who really propelled me down this rabbit hole. And so, um, you know, at the time, there was not a lot of places to read about this stuff. Um, there was The Nation, but and there was uh, Consortium News. But... For the most part, if you want to read about this stuff um, and you don't know Ukrainian or Russian, um, you were pretty much relegated to like alternative uh, media websites, which could were not always very reliable. And so eventually, you know, it's um, I came to the conclusion that I wasn't really capable of cutting through all this information war and that um, I got more interested in the history. And um, so... Yeah, I think for me, it was just such a shock um, politically, um, 2014, 2015, to realize that the media had been lying about this. And, um, you know, I grew up, uh, I was in, I think, seventh grade when Obama won the election. And me I thought, too. Yeah, you know, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, <laughs> I at the time, I thought he was like a you know, other people thought Bernie Sanders might be, you know, I thought Obama was going to like change the world, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah, world man. hunger, you yeah, know, yeah. Fuck, I get on it. earth. And yes, so, we can. Yeah. So I got very jaded. Um, and events in Ukraine were a big part of that. And um, so, yeah, that was a big motivation for me. And, but then also as you get into it and you read about this stuff, it's crazy mind blowing enough on its own that, um, my ulterior motivations you might say kind of sure 
stopped being really relevant. And then I was just really driven to learn more about this. And um, because I'll just say real quickly, um, originally I was interested to dig deeper into this question of um, the CIA's relationship with former Nazi collaborators from Ukraine. And then I realized it was more complicated than that. I mentioned this guy, Mikhail Labed, who was one of the chief people they supported. Labed broke with Stepan Bandera, this infamous Nazi collaborator in Ukraine after World War II. So the CIA didn't support Bandera directly, but it supported the like allegedly reformed Banderites, the like moderate rebels of, of Ukraine, essentially. And um, so um, maybe in part because the stuff was a little bit complicated, it, I had to do deeper digging. And originally, I just wanted to try to connect all these different strands of things that people had already written about. And um, it was when I had this realization that OUN still exists. And I wasn't the first to realize this, but yeah, um, I um, that's when it became more, um, my research became more original. And uh, when I truly lost my mind. <laughs> well, I think this is like a really, because I want to, I think this is a really good place to uh, start with the very basics of what we're going to be talking about today. Because already we've we've mentioned uh, the uh, they're not the O U N. They actually say it's like the like it's not you don't say it O U N right. Like you say, like I heard them saying O U N. Yeah, right. So, yeah. but the organization of Ukrainian nationalists is uh, we're going to be talking a lot about that today. There's also the Ukrainian insurgent army, which is UPA. And I want to start just, and then there's also the Waffen SS, right? And that's the uh, Galicia, right? And that yeah, was, Galicia division or the fourteenth Waffen. And the and the uh, the gentleman that was uh, uh, honored at Parliament was from that division, right? And that's then we right. also are going to be talking a lot about uh, Azov. Is that how you pronounce it, Azov? That was been around about the last decade. Another, uh, and I just want to start by sort of defining some of these things so that when people hear these terms throughout the the uh, our interview today they they know where we're going with them um because uh bandera is a great place to start because that's sort of the uh the name of of your blog and your now youtube show um and you mentioned Stepan bandera so he was the the what like the original leader of the uh organization of ukrainian nationalists or uh, he at one point was the head of it um, yeah, he wasn't the original founder. Um, that was um, a guy named Konovalitz, who the OUN was founded in 1929 in Vienna, of all places. Um, and the founder was himself assassinated in Rotterdam in 1938. And then that opens up a... Um, and in that time, over the 30s, this movement um, underwent a process of becoming increasingly pro-Nazi and fascist and anti-Semitic. And... Um, so then after their founder and leader is assassinated, um, it sets it up for a um, kind of a power struggle between these two factions, which, among other things, was really cut along generational lines. So it's split into the OUNM and B, M for Melnik and B for Bendera. Melnik was anointed the successor, and at that time, Bendera was uh, imprisoned in Poland uh, serving what was supposed to be a life sentence for the assassination of the interior minister of Poland in 1934, which is what really, when Bandera becomes um, his name, when he becomes a prominent figure, a notorious figure. And so at the start of World War II, Bandera and um, 
others, you know, with like him were um, released or escaped from prison in that mayhem. And um, ultimately, Bandera challenges Melnick, uh, saying that he should be the leader. And then you have this split 1940-41. And so that's how you have these two major factions. And so the um, the Melnikites were more closely linked to the um, Waffen-SS division, the creation of it in 1943. And at that same time, the Banderites create UPA, or Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Um, but, uh, well, your question was about Bandera. Bandera um, was... Uh, actually born uh, also actually among that generational divide the older generation were world war one veterans and then the younger generation people like bandera were growing up during world war one and say so they kind of they soaked in a lot of the nationalism but then didn't participate themselves and so they wound up being um even more extreme than uh their parents generation and so the um, Bandera faction was younger and was also more extreme, um, but both uh, factions were pro-Nazi. Banderites were more radical and more impatient with the Nazis. Um, in 1941, as the Germans invaded so, the Soviet like, you're Union... So you're saying the Banderites wanted the Nazis to be even more like ruthless than they were being, or what? Like You said they were growing they were, impatient with them. Well, impatient with... Um, you know, the nationalists want to believe that Nazi Germany would, quote unquote, liberate Ukraine and support um, the creation of an, an independent uh, Ukrainian state that would be, you know, uh, for Ukrainians only to help okay. them create the Ukraine for Ukrainians that they envisioned right. um, and like a fascist pro-Nazi government. And so the Banderites went ahead and tried to do that with or without the German support, hoping to basically force their hand, and that backfired for them. So the band, uh, so the Nazis ended up cracking down on the Banderites and later the Melnikites. But um, because the Nazis essentially turned on the Banderites, that allowed the Banderites to um, try to make it look like the other, it was the other way around. That. Um, that the Banderites led an anti-Nazi resistance and that when they tried to create a government, a pro-Nazi government, that that was actually an anti-Nazi government. So um, the Melnikites were more patient, you know, I, I think to, you know, hoping that if they go along with them, that eventually the Germans will agree to support uh, a pro-Nazi nominally uh, independent Ukraine so there, the differences were more, I think, um, between the two factions were more personal, generational, petty, and strategic. They weren't um, because one side was pro-Nazi and the other side was anti-Nazi or right. something like that. But, but Bandera... Then, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I You asked about Bandera. No, no, it's great. I things. keep going. This is what I want. So, But Bandera um, was... a. Uh, an early member of the OUN and he quickly rose through the ranks. So by, I think the, by 1933 or 1934, I think he became the leader of OUN in the homeland, the homeland executive of it, which at that point for them, the homeland was Western Ukraine, which then was part of Poland. So Bandera was the leader essentially in Poland and the international leadership of OUN, which was already had created a front group in Canada and the United States, 
um, and was based in um, Western Europe, uh, and particularly in the fascist capitals of Western Europe, Rome and Berlin, um, uh, basically Bandera uh, essentially felt like his time had come or his generation's time had come to lead this uh, movement. And so um, he was, you know, he was also, so in 1938, when they have this new successor come in, and they have a, a, a secret uh, Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists in Rome, which anoints this guy Melnik. There was actually a delegate from the Canadian Front Group there at that um, Congress in Rome, where they institute, um, uh, they move more in fascist uh, direction. And then Bandera later, even more so, um, you know, that they wanted a, um, to create a single party fascist government led by Bandera. So I, I like to think of Bandera was like the wannabe Hitler of Ukraine. He never got into power like that. But um, Bandera, I guess, long story short, um, Bandera was a pretty divisive figure. So um, after the war, he became increasingly unpopular. Um, the OUNB had uh, multiple defections from it. And um, but then the KGB uh, assassinates him in 1959 and they try to make it look like a suicide but they messed up and then that backfires and Bandera goes from basically drifting into irrelevance to becoming this huge martyr and um, it's I think really in death that Bandera has been most successful as a you know Ukrainian nationalist leader um, and so he's of the like pro-Nazi or fascist pantheon of quote unquote heroes of Ukraine or the nationalist Ukrainian diaspora, Bandera is, you know, the first among equals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's really interesting that, that, that divide in, in, in the OUN, because when we talk about the OUN, it's mostly the OUNB, but it seemed like the, the, the OUNM were the ones who were, um, more like willing to work alongside um the nazis in terms of their long-term goal whereas bandera was kind of a, a wild card in in a way like he he was willing to work with the nazis but um the nazis thought he was um a, a bit of a loose cannon uh it seems um and um but i was because so but before we move these... on there just want to make sure we specifically mentioned because i do we haven't actually specifically said it in here but i like i've been reading some of your stuff and going through what these like the own what actually was and and the upa the uh ukrainian like they actively participated in holocaustal like activity right they actually killed poles jews like like we want i want to make sure that like they weren't just like I want to like sure, make sure the listener understands like these weren't just groups that were like negotiating with the Nazis because like it was better for their future or whatever. They were fucking killing Jews and Poles like in spades. Anyways, sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, I mentioned they tried to create a pro-Nazi government um, that was under as the Germans move in and um, to Western Ukraine. And so the Banderites, as they create try to set up this pro-Nazi government in Western Ukraine. They also um, helped to spearhead these Nazi pogroms, 
um, which killed thousands. Um, and then uh, the Bandarites later infiltrate the uh, auxiliary police units that are, you know, played a really important role in what people call the Holocaust by bullets. And then it was only after the German defeat at Stalingrad, when everyone could see which way the winds are blowing, um, that the Bandarites then create the Ukrainian insurgent army or UPA ostensibly well now they like to say it was an anti-nazi resistance movement that's not really true in any case they reconciled with the germans by 1944 and um and also that year they come out with this basically fake democratic program to appeal to western governments but in the meantime they've been killing as many jews and poles and anyone else they didn't like as possible um so that's um I guess real quick also add the maybe some of the ironic thing with this recent scandal is um someone like Christian Freeland I think when she heard Yaroslav Hunka being introduced probably assumed that she was clapping for a veteran of UPA which a lot of people would think is not as bad as clapping for a veteran of the Galicia division and the thing that's especially egregious about the Waffen SS Ukrainian division is that they um you know, they had training in that in education of national uh, socialism, and they swore an oath to Hitler. But um, the Banderites were even bigger Holocaust perpetrators. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think there's an argument that slapping for an UPA veteran would be worse. But if it wasn't UPA veteran, there may have been no scandal at all, because they would have. Mm-hmm. So right, that's like, the... like, so like, that's what's sort of funny about or. or not funny, I guess, strange or whatever, but that whole invite. And I was listening to your interview with, um, I apologize, the one we've been talking about, the doctor. John Paul Himka. Yes, Himka. Who great is Christia Freeland's uncle? Crazy, but great, great interview. But um, so what I got out of that part of the interview was that this guy that was invited to parliament was a member of the Waffen-SS and he is of a group that is assumed by the West to be like really, really bad in the Holocaust. And so now we're all like, oh, you invited an actual Nazi and you guys are the dumbest fucking people in the world. But the truth is, of all of these groups, they were the least involved in the Holocaust. They really didn't do. Is that. And then so, like, if we actually knew our history, we wouldn't be all that sh- upset about this guy coming to parliament or is it still bad or like i the whole thing is just like confusing in that part for me i hope i made sense <laughs> no I, I hear what you're saying i mean it's there's i mean it's um not to downplay the significance of it it's crazy it's just that um well i guess first of all maybe it should be first thing to say is that so the waffen ss galicia division like the upa itself was created in 1943 and I'm pretty sure by that point, most Jews in Ukraine had already been killed. So, you know, the Holocaust perpetrators in this was not the SS that was that most people think of that was guarding the concentration camps, administering it and stuff. This was um, these were um, soldiers, but and they did are known to have committed um, a number of atrocities. Um, but um I mean, it's very likely that, you know, of the Holocaust perpetrators in um, that division, they probably got their hands bloody before they joined this unit um, when it comes to killing Jews. I will say real quick, um, 
part of, I mean, something that I don't think I've seen people point out to the extent that people in North America really know about the Holocaust. Uh, for many, I think it's because they read Night by Elie Wiesel in school. On literally the opening pages, page six, he mentions Galicia twice on the page. Um, you may remember it starts with the story of saying that all the foreign Jews were deported from this town, I think in Hungary, where he's growing up. And someone makes it back to tell uh, this horror story in which he says that the train stops in Galician Forest, which then specifies um, the town. If you look it up, it's now Western Ukraine. And saying that, you know, the Jews were made to dig their own graves and then they were um, massacred and that um, police even throw up babies in the air and shoot them and like really horrific things like this. Um, it's certainly plausible that some of those people wind up going to the Galicia division. And but it may be that when they were in the Galicia division, they were not killing Jews like they were before, but they got there. Um, so, I mean, I think there's the thing is, I'm not trying to sit here and tell people they need to be nuanced when talking about Nazis. Um, right. you know, I don't think you can really expect that, you know, people to be like, well, don't get so upset. you got to understand the nuances. Nazi bad but, every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the there are nuances to this stuff, which I think provides, um, you know, I think when you look at the history of people trying to bring attention to these issues, often there's either a mistake or there's an exaggeration or something. And then Ukrainian nationalists can pounce on that and say, oh, see, this is all Russian propaganda and you don't understand the history and blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's not to downplay it, but it's just a little ironic that, um, you know, typically the focus the out on the outrages in Canada has been with these veterans of uh, the Galicia division. And in the meantime, the Banderites um, essentially get a free pass. And um, so, yeah, like I said, it's the part that's especially egregious is that these are the quintessential collaborators. Um, the Banderites, they've, it's more complicated, which is, you know, provided more opportunity for them to uh, muddy the waters and then whitewash history. Um, and the, I mean, but this is literally a Nazi military unit it's um, not so easy to uh, whitewash, but people have done their best to do so for sure. Um, so, no, I mean, um, the, yeah, to answer that question, um, the um, getting into the nuance of it is, uh, wasn't meant to downplay the, the outrage of this because it is yeah, no outrageous. Yeah. But I think the nuances are interesting and, and they're important in in understanding um, that it wasn't just this one unit that uh, I think it, it's so outrageous um, because that this unit was literally an SS unit. They were armed and trained by the Nazis. They pledged an oath of loyalty to Hitler. They were visited by Himmler. But the organization that wasn't any of those things actually killed more people in the service of the the same aim and you know i wanted to talk about the 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 aim right because um you know there are millions of ukrainians who fought against the nazis um with the red army but as we've just discussed there were also uh quite a few 
who uh, fought with the Nazis. So what, can you tell us a bit more about the motivation of um, Ukrainian collaboration with the Nazis? Obviously, they thought uh, naively at best that this was going to get them an independent state. But um, other Ukrainians, um, I think, saw through the Nazis. So what what assumptions were, were UPA and the um, Galicia Division members making that um, other Ukrainians weren't? I think um, maybe in part because an ideological affinity with Nazi Germany and um, fascists in Europe that they wanted to believe that this was uh, strategically the right decision for them. Um, I think maybe to some extent they deceived themselves into thinking that Hitler would support their aims, at least at the end of the day. Um, they like to say that this was just a completely strategic decision um, and a mistake, a mistaken one at that, but but it was much more than that. Um, it, it wasn't just a um, cold-hearted, you know, this is the better, a lesser of two evils type of thing. It was, um, yeah, I mean, I think there definitely was an ideological affinity, which I think sort of blinded them to um, to what should have, I think, been pretty clear that the, um, the Hitler was not like pro-Ukraine. But Alfred Rosenberg, who was one of the ideologues of the Nazi party and um, probably the most high-ranking Nazi who did subscribe to this idea that the Nazis should, um, if only on paper, support Ukrainian independence, he also deceived himself about that things could go this way. Um, I think it wasn't until the Nazis uh, captured Kiev that he finally admitted to himself in his diary that Hitler's view was that that there um, wasn't really a distinction to be made between Ukrainians and Russians, you know, that they were all the same Slavic subhuman. Um, so, uh, I yeah, mean, I mean, I guess is some of that, like yeah. as far as how Ukrainian, uh, how Ukrainians might be you know, where their loyalties are or where their ideologies are. I mean, is that not just like, other than like the extreme, maybe how extreme it gets, but is it not like not much different than what happens in, in our countries too? I mean, like, fuck, like people are on the opposite sides of ideology all over the place here, right? Like we have like far right people, we have far left people. Is that, is it similar in that sense in the Ukraine? Like it's just like, like anywhere else, there's going to be people that think the opposite of each other. And like, it's for us to assume that Ukraine is just this one entity that is like, fighting this one entity of Russia or whatever, like that that's where like we have to like realize that that's not how people are. Like they're just imaginary lines and people living where they are, are not going to always like have the same mindset of what they want. And is that sort of similar? Like mm -hmm. Ukraine's kind of just like, even like right now it seems to be like, you know, NATO's Western like, ability to watch russia or whatever and like they always seem like they're just like there's this they're in between these two ideologically different geographical areas like like soviet union and and the west is that sort of just part of why ukraine has become such a hotbed for this stuff because it is just so per like situated in the middle of that yeah i mean geography is a big part of it i mean Western Ukraine in particular is where 
the nationalists and the real like pro-Nazi sentiment comes from. I mean, I think there were people living in Soviet Ukraine who, um, you know, thought, well, it can't get any worse than this. And then the Nazis come and then they realize, oh, actually it can. Um, but it's Western Ukraine that uh, you have this nationalist movement that um, was, you know, actually very pro-Nazi and um, and then still today, I mean, that's where the hardcore far-right nationalist movement has come from, like the Svoboda Party. Oh, actually, you, I think you wanted to get into Azov later. I mean, Azov is a little different, and then it comes out of Eastern Ukraine. Um, at least it's more modern form, but um, but for the most part, it is Western Ukraine where this stuff comes from. And even in Western Ukraine, it's not like everyone there is a, a Nazi. Right. Um, but the fact that Western Ukraine is really... Um, it was the Western, the post World War II emigration of Ukrainians to North America was dominated by uh, people from Western Ukraine. So that really shifted the diaspora politically. Um, and so, you know, of course, Ukrainians are not all Nazis and fascists and banderites, blah, blah, blah. But it's easier to get that impression dealing with the Ukrainian diaspora um, than actual Ukrainians in Ukraine because um, the nationalists politically really did take over the diaspora, the, which you might call the organized diaspora, um, the people who were really motivated to, you know, take over community organizations and umbrella organizations like the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and, and we'll get to more of that um, shortly. But I wanted to ask you, go, you know, going back to World War II, um, you know, you have this view among popular historians, like I think probably chief among them, Timothy Snyder, um, that Ukrainians were caught between two uh, totalitarian uh, regimes, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, that were morally equivalent in that uh atrocities were committed on both sides and you can't blame ukrainians for picking one side over the other um there there's a piece recently by a canadian journalist uh justin ling that sort of made this argument about uh the whole honka affair um i, I why is this view wrong well, for starters, I mean, one of the first things people mention is the famine in 1932-33 Soviet Ukraine. But again, Western Ukraine was not part of the Soviet Union at that point. It was part of Poland. And um, so, you know, the people in Western Ukraine may have had relatives who suffered from the famine, but they themselves did not. And so this idea that they were traumatized by that event in particular and that that's what their motivation was to um, to go with the Germans as like a lesser of two evils, naive choices, um, completely BS. Um, and then otherwise to, you know, I mean, I just feel like it's such a ridiculous idea. Um, but the, this idea that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were like, it's like having to make a choice between Democrats and Republicans. Like, right, you know, right, like right. there's like... Um, but um in world war ii we have these we have we've 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 sort of like we say we're, we've allowed it to become like oh well they just had to pick between 
the lesser of two evils and it was, it was one or the other. Um, did Were there lots of Ukrainians that sort of didn't do that, that just like didn't pick a side, that just like stayed like... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and But the thing is, I think also with these nationalists, they don't think they were the same. They think that the, that the Soviets were worse, you know. Um, right. So they don't even believe this notion that it was yeah the and same it's two fun. evils it, it's actually funny you know um i remember a few a couple of weeks ago seeing a tweet from uh you know famed uh canadian uh right-wing public intellectual jordan peterson saying that the communists were worse than the nazis and then uh the other day he's tweeting about how oh my God, Trudeau invited a literal SS veteran to parliament. And it's like, he thought, like, Yaroslav Hunka presumably thought the exact same thing that you did, uh, you do about the Soviet Union, that not only was its crimes morally equivalent to those of Nazi Germany, but they were actually worse, right? So it's funny uh, seeing people sort of twist themselves in pretzels to make this a... Uh, uh, a partisan issue when uh, all the uh, parties in Canadian Parliament stood up and applauded this guy and, and didn't think, hmm. And it's funny, you see the video of Anthony Roda introducing Hunka as this veteran who fought for Ukrainian independence against Russia in World War II. And there's like a few seconds where like he pauses uh, like, did, wait a second we all we all fought with russia <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and uh, uh, did you notice that moss oh yeah <laughs> you mean that pause he took yeah yeah before well, the also movie. in um you know in a statement he made um he said this initiative was entirely my own the individual in question being from my writing and having been brought to my attention well makes you wonder who brought him to your attention um and, well, and like uh, that was the part. Like, I'm definitely like, I don't know any. Like, if I didn't know anything about, like, somebody just start like introducing a guy, I'd be ready to stand and applaud too. Until they got to the part where what we're just talking about, where he's like, he fought hard against the Russians in World War II, and were like, that was the moment where I was like, but they were our ally. Mm -hmm. So what? Like nobody had that moment of pause and that, that like the whole fucking parliament stood including the conservatives too like i don't think didn't they like it's not like the conservatives all sat there and were like no fuck this guy is a nazi though it's I funny um before this you know people like ivan kachanovsky and myself and others pointed out that wait a minute this guy fought the russians what does that mean um there were liberal partisan accounts like attacking uh, the conservatives for not applauding enthusiastically enough because that was, of course, Zelensky's visit. And I think that was also the big thing people got caught up in is they wanted to demonstrate how much they support Ukraine because, um, you know, the the four parties and five parties, I guess, in Canadian Parliament, I mean, all support um, you know, giving endless aid, both military and humanitarian to to Ukraine. 
Um, so I think that was a big part of it too, right? That you, you, you know, when in that context, when Zelensky's here with his delegation from Ukraine to ask for more money, you can't be seen as, uh, you know, falling out of line. Um, and, and also, I mean, Zelensky too. I mean, he, his, his grandparents fought in the Red Army, right? He's from Eastern Ukraine. Um, and they they fought the Nazis, but uh, he was applauding too. And of course, uh, you know, we'll talk about Azov in a second, but he's been meeting with Azov people and calling them heroes since the war broke out. Um, and uh, it's interesting, but I want to, I mean, you mentioned who brought uh, Rhoda's uh, constituent, Yaroslav Humka, to his attention and, you know, I think that it might have been the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. And I wanted to talk a bit about them because, um, of course, uh, Canada has a massive Ukrainian diaspora. Like, there are more Ukrainians in Canada than the United States. There are more Ukrainians in Canada than any country except for Russia and maybe Poland now because of all the the refugees, though I, 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 I'm I not uh, sure. But in any event, lots of Ukrainians in Canada, lots of Ukrainians here where I live in Edmonton. Um, and I wanted to ask you about sort of what, if you could elaborate on what role uh, these Ukrainian nationalist organizations like the UCC played in sort of uh, rewriting the history of these organizations and creating this mythology that you've been alluding to that, no, these guys were actually... Like, these guys were either, in the case of Waffen-SS, doing what they had to do to secure Ukrainian independence, or in the case of UPA, actually were secretly against the Nazis, even though they participated in the same uh, persecution that the Nazis were doing. I, mean, I think they've played a really important role in all of that. Um the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, um, unlike some of these other umbrella organizations that act as the, um, you know, I think the Ukrainian Canadian Congress literally describes itself as the official spokesbody of Ukrainians in Canada, which is obviously problematic when you have these hardcore nationalists kind of as the pillar of that organization. Um, in Canada, you don't just have Banderites, you have Melnikites also. Um, and both factions of OU, those two factions of OUN still exist. I'm not sure that the OUNM still is pulling the strings of the Melnikite organizations in Canada, like the Banderites are, but, um, for their organizations, but still, I mean, these Melnikite organizations and Banderite organizations don't necessarily run the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, but they are, play a very important role in it. Um, their influence may have declined a bit over recent years, but um, their narratives really won the day. Um, and so it's obviously problematic when the spokesbody for uh, Ukrainians in Canada and also kind of around the world, too, with Ukrainians in Canada having such a prominent, um, so many of them, Um that this group is then basically captured by um, extremists or just very far-right nationalists and um, people who feel an affinity ideologically with neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And the um, Galicia division is an example of that because I think in the Ukrainian diaspora, um, 
where nationalists have been politically in charge of their organiz these organizations, most of them for decades, um, celebration and glorification of people like Mr. Hunka is a lot more uh, accepted and mainstream in the Ukraine diaspora than it is in Ukraine. In Ukraine, when you have a march for the Galicia division, it's literally neo-Nazis and other far-right nationalists, whereas in Canada, there's a lot more um, normal people. Um, I mean, uh, Yaroslav Hunka's uh, uh, granddaughter, I think it was, who posted the photos on Facebook of him waiting in like a reception room, allegedly for to meet Trudeau and Zelensky. And I don't think Trudeau's been challenged by that, by any reporters, like with that photo of that evidence that he actually did. Yeah, he just said, oh, no, we didn't meet him. And then that's what people have been saying. Oh, yeah, no, they didn't meet Zelensky, didn't meet him. But yeah, I'm not aware of anyone being like, but there's this photo from, I actually think, even though she called him her, uh, what's the word for grandfather in Ukrainian, uh, Duda? Dido, yeah. Dido, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, even though she, uh, apparently she's actually his daughter-in-law, which I, I guess she's like, because they're her kid's grandfather okay. or whatever. Um, but Well, but if you um, scroll down her page more, it's like pride flags and stuff. Yeah, know? yeah, so... yeah. Like she's a diehard liberal. Um, mm -hmm. I, I noticed that as well. Um, which is, you know, uh, funny because a lot of these Ukrainian nationalist types are like profoundly, uh, well, more than conservative, but, um, you know, fascist, I, I guess you could say. Um, but also, I'm sorry, I just want to answer. I, I kind of went on a tangent and didn't really answer the question, your question about the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, because um, someone like with Christian Freeland, she doesn't really work directly with the Bandrites, but they can. That relationship can be filtered through the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. So the past president of Ukrainian Canadian Congress is a total Banderite, Paul uh, Grod. Paul Grod, who who's, a, who's a good friend of Freeland's. Yeah. and But aside from that, I don't know of many direct connections between her and the Banderites. And so, you know, surely I think she's aware of who they are. So I think you can infer from that that she doesn't want to work with them directly, but she can through the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which I think speaks to the importance of an organization like this for these far right nationalists, um, where um, they can basically establish themselves as the real spokespeople, like they're the real Ukrainians, you know. Um, and uh, so, I mean, and then the Ukrainian diaspora, these nationalists do have a direct connection to the nationalists in Ukraine. So there's something called the Olzich Foundation in Canada, which is a Melnikite organization, if not a complete Melnikite front group, which at least in the 90s was funding the creation of the OUNM network in Ukraine, um, which then later was behind the something called the OUN Battalion in Ukraine, which is one of these far right rogue units, which is basically allied with um i think originally that oun battalion was almost created as the second azov battalion um so there's um uh really ties a lot of these things together um the ukrainian canadian congress and it's like a safe space for all these people to network and exert their influence yeah that's interesting that it's like a conduit from 
these these bandrite groups to sort of more mainstream figures who aren't uh closely associated with them i recall actually I, last year if you remember at that uh pro ukraine rally where freeland uh held up that uh upa banner with the uh slava ukraini uh Hiroim slava uh slogan which i mean slava ukraini now is like pretty much just you know it's a patriarch slogan lots of people say they're not necessarily Nazis, but the second part of that is sort of the fascist uh, call and response. But my point is, I don't know if you caught this, Moss, but a friend of mine, actually, Taylor Noakes, uh, was covering the story for the Canadian press, and he reached out to Freeland's office for comment. He got comment back from the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Right. That was super interesting. Yeah, really interesting. And one more thing, because uh, this is obviously this issue is bigger than Freeland, but she is a very powerful um, ally of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, right? Um, uh, there, there's a passage, uh, there's an, it, Michael Gnadiev in, in his old book, uh, Blood and Belonging, which is a very good book, which I wouldn't say of a, a lot of books Michael Gnadi has written, but this one is. And uh, there's an interview with he does with Christia Freeland in, in just speaking to sort of how these Ukrainian diaspora organizations are much closer to the ultranationalists than people on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, she talks about how um, that people in Ukraine are still sort of like brainwashed by communism and they've lost this, this you know, spirit of like Ukrainian patriotism that's kept alive by the diaspora. And I, I, I think that's really interesting and uh, really sort of makes that point you were making. Um, but um, I wanted to talk now about uh, contemporary Ukraine because, you know, historically um, the um, uh, the 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 sort of diaspora organizations, the lobbying groups have been much more stridently nationalist than people actually living in Ukraine, right? I mean, Zelensky was uh, elected with an overwhelming majority um, and people like to point out that he was Jewish to be like, what, there can't be a problem with Nazis in Ukraine. But what I think is most interesting with that is he ran on a platform of making peace with Russia right, of implementing the Minsk Accords, um, which were signed between Ukraine and, like, pro-Russian separatists in, in the East. Russia wasn't actually a party to it, from my understanding. Um, but then uh, the war happens, and we know what war does to people, right? I mean, we were talking about this in World War II. Um and um, these movements that I think were um, regarded, whether rightfully or wrongfully, as, as fringe in Ukraine have really become mainstream. And so I'm wondering what role this sort of nationalist narrative has played on the ground in Ukraine, uh, both before the war and now. Um, I guess maybe a short answer would be I see Azov as kind of its own thing, but it is standing on the shoulders of the OUN and the nationalist movement of the 20th century. Um, you know, it's the thing they can all agree on is that people like Bandera and Shukhevich, the commander of UPA, that they were heroes of Ukraine. And, um, you know, maybe the Banderites to some extent actually believe their own lives that, you know, 
that Bandera was an anti-Nazi freedom fighter or whatever, whereas the neo-Nazis like Bandera because he was a Nazi collaborator, you know. Um, but um, no, I mean, it's uh, I think from especially with 24, I mean, it didn't start in 2014, but I think 2014 is where what you might call the banderization of Ukraine really takes off. And, um, but the, ironically, um, the, I think people look back on this war and see that as the catalyst for the actual Nazification that some people thought that they saw in 2014. Um, whereas there is kind of, there really is a distinction, I think, to be made, not a black and white distinction, but there is a distinction between Banderites and neo-Nazis. Um, you have um in the 1990s in ukraine there was uh really three main far-right parties there was the neo-nazi social national party of ukraine there was That's the OUN, Svoboda? which became svoboda oh. um but then it's paramilitary so when uh it in 2004 becomes svoboda and the paramilitary and it parts ways with its paramilitary wing which i think was supposed to be shut down but then the branch in Kharkiv kept going, and then that was Patriot of Ukraine as the paramilitary wing. And so the Kharkiv branch of Patriot of Ukraine ends up becoming the, um, that's Belitsky's uh, group, and Belitsky is the founder of the Azov movement. So that's where they come from. And that's also where the original Azov uh, symbol comes from, of the Wolfsangel symbol, of the black um swastika-like symbol over a yellow flag um but so Svoboda essentially that transformation to the extent that it really was one was to say you know we're not really a neo-nazi group anymore now we're just like a good banderite group or nationalist group and um i see Svoboda as kind of a crypto nazi group same with right sector another one that's kind of in that gray area that um contains a lot of neo-nazis but actually right sector was spearheaded by um what was originally an OUNB paramilitary group which it's a similar process happens but earlier um where the paramilitary group goes its own way and um in around the turn of the 21st century which also seems to line up with when the OUNB itself may have started to receive the support of people in Washington um and so there's kind of a pattern of making themselves more acceptable by shedding some of their more militant neo-nazi or aggressive far-right nationalist components and um but uh yeah I, I feel like i'm rambling a little bit but um these i think all these different movements um if before the war, even the Banderites were a little nervous about being associated with Azov and hardcore neo-Nazis in Ukraine, I think that's changed now. I think these groups are increasingly coming to see themselves as all as one big nationalist movement. And, um, you know, the 100th anniversary of the creation of the OUN will be in 2029. And I almost wonder if Azov and all these other groups are going to try to um come together for that anniversary or something you know um but i mean that's just pure speculation but i think they they are kind of 
there's a bunch of divisions and stuff, but I think they are in a way coalescing and, but regardless, um, it's, this war has probably been the greatest thing to happen to the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the whole, the idea that this war was launched to denazify Ukraine is a joke because it's really, if anything, I think just facilitating the actual Nazification of the country um, and of the nationalists in general in Ukraine. Um, Which I suspect is the point, right? To create this self-fulfilling prophecy that, oh, yeah. we need to get rid of all the Nazis in Ukraine. And then Ukrainians get radicalized and uh, there isn't, uh, like everywhere else in the world, there isn't like a strong uh, institutional left to maybe radicalize them in a more uh, uh, positive direction. And so... Um, people uh, in Ukraine become increasingly radicalized rightwards. And then Russia has an excuse to continue its war and NATO is uh, glad to uh, play along with that. And, uh, you know, and people in Ukraine suffer greatly as, as a result. Um, but I wonder, so we were talking about these Ukrainian nationalist organizations during the Second World War and sort of what their motivations were, right? It was, I mean, they varied based on the faction. But what are these far-right groups operating in Ukraine now? What's their endgame? Is it this, like, because obviously the, the, the OUN wanted a, 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 an independent Ukraine, right? And we, you know, we can critique... Uh, how they sought to get there but that was their their at least that was their stated end goal what but ukraine's independent now so what do these far-right nationalists want well that was also part of why i um i guess naively assumed that when i was in my historical research phase assumed that oun the oun ceased to exist um or at least you know they could say mission accomplished guys after ukraine becomes independent but after Ukraine becomes independent, their next goal was to build a strong nationalist state allied with the West against Russia. Um, I think for many of the, the far right nationalists, I think their end goal is the destruction of Russia and the creation of a greater Ukraine. I mean, that's the real like neo-Nazi fantasy. Um, so, you know, this idea that... Um, you know, seems to be, at least if you're online, you get the impression this is like universally accepted by Ukrainians that, you know, uh, Ukraine and Zelensky himself, that anything less than reclaiming every inch of Ukrainian territory um, that's been lost since 1991, um, anything less than that is like defeat. And that, but for the national, like Azov and those types, that would not be a full victory. The full victory would be going all the way and, um, the destruction of Russia, which they see as like an empire still, and, uh, you know, breaking up Russia into uh, smaller ethno states. And then from there, they can reclaim the territories, the more historic they consider territories that um, should be part of Ukraine, um, which is, I think, a complete fantasy. But the only way you get there is uh, World War Three, you know, so... Um, I think, um, 
I think the more this, the longer this war drags on, I think the more likely it is, like you say, that this whole thing, not denazification, will prove to be a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, uh, so I think for the Banderites, they call them, they like to call themselves state builders. Um, and they've been doing that since the 90s. So, um, they have changed, you know, there was a point when I think 2018, the OUNB itself um, essentially was trying to distance itself from the neo-Nazis and be more responsible nationalists. You know, they want to work with Poroshenko and they had people in the government, people like Ulana Saprun, who was the healthcare minister of Ukraine, uh, 2016 to 2019, Volodymyr Vyotrovich, who was the people called the memory czar of Ukraine. Uh, 2014 to 2019, uh, Serhii uh, Kvit, which was education minister, 2014 to 2016. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I think, and then when Zelensky comes in, um, they were back to threatening a new Maidan-style revolution against him if he made any negotiations with Russia. And I think that's, I think one of the most important uh, things they've done in recent years was to, I mean, of course, and we can't really know that if Zelensky felt free to do so, if he really would have made uh, a meaningful peace uh, settlement with Russia. But um, Zelensky did not have the support of the United States to do so. And he had a bunch of far right nationalists, including those who were very well connected to the diaspora in Canada um, and the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Um, basically threatening to overthrow him or worse if he dared to do anything. So, um, you know, I, I think um, the question of, you know, people like to say like it's gospel that this, that Russia's invasion was completely unprovoked, but um, provoking someone is not the same thing as justifying the response, you know? Um, and so the thing I always think of is, you know, if I provoke you, say enough nasty things before you punch me in the face, I provoked you, but that doesn't mean you're justified to, you know, hit me. Um, and so I think, of course, Russia was provoked. Um, that doesn't mean it was justified. But uh, the provocation was not just NATO expansion. I think the um, I think basically Putin made his decision to invade Ukraine, I think when he gave up on Zelensky, which basically happens when Joe Biden comes into office and Zelensky does this essentially a 180 of um, and starts cracking down on the like pro-Russian or the Russian speaking uh, media in Ukraine, which uh, from Russia's perspective was its um, vehicle for exerting soft power in Ukraine. And so then they go hard power and military and um so i think the banderites also you know in talking about um this notion of denazifying ukraine was kind of in response to uh ukraine's program of decommunization which was led by banderites who again very close to the banderites in canada and elsewhere in the diaspora so i think they did play a very important and understated role in um, uh, provoking this war. And I think they will come back with a vengeance um, 
if and when the Ukrainian government does try to um, end this war, um, they seem to think that, uh, you know, I think they recognize, like you said, or like we both just said, that, you know, the longer this goes on, the better it will be for them, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so in that way, ironically, it's like Putin and the neo-Nazis in Ukraine have a almost a similar take on this. It, you know, I do think yeah, as, it's, as, as is often the case when when you have like global um, conflict um, and um, the, you said the crackdown on Russian language media that happened before the war. That was, um, yeah, just as Biden came in, I think January, maybe February 2 of 2021. And then Putin started massing troops on the border that spring. And um, I think there have been reports that said that that was, that crackdown is what, when he made his up his mind that he was going to invade. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the timeline's pretty clear um, that that was... A really important role in all of this and i i think you make a really uh important point too talking about pro provocation because in geopolitics everything provoked right you could it, it, it's same you know you look at um you know israel and palestine too um they'll say oh these unprovoked rocket attacks from gaza and it's like well the they were provoked, right? I mean, the, the Israeli blockade on Gaza, occupation and whatnot. And then Israelis would say, oh, the occupation is provoked by, um, you know, Arab wars on Israel. And then you could say, well, the wars on Israel were provoked by ethnic cleansing, of right? I mean, so the, this whole unprovoked thing, I think it's really a product of this, like, um, liberal democratic arrogance um that we are like a civilizing force and so we're just upholding what's right and just and then anyone who responds unfavorably to our actions is is doing a provocation when it actually works both ways and it's it's kind of you know yeah it it, I, it drives me nuts when people are like russia's unprovoked invasion of ukraine it's like yeah we get it. you're against the war i'm against the war too but you know, we we also have to acknowledge geopolitical realities and the history. And I, I mean, I've hijacked this discussion and Scott has been patiently um, hanging out with his cat. Um, <laughs> and I, so I just want to bring Scott back in. I know we got to wrap up soon. Do you have any more questions? I've got one more. Well, the only one that I really wanted to really make sure we got into you guys kind of did which was that like we we sit here and we we spend a lot of time really going over all the various sort of far-right groups um in in ukraine and history and how it connects today and how they still exist and how canada has treated with that and i just i really wanted to make sure we discussed because i didn't want our listeners to be like so are we does that mean like ukraine bad putin good and you guys started to really talk about that because i think that's like where all of these discussions seem to hit a wall with with the average person, and I mean, quote unquote, the average person, just like the regular Joe. I don't mean like you're an average person, so relax. But I'm just saying like these conversations tend to get sort of stonewalled when it gets to this stuff because it's like, oh, what are you saying? Like you're pro-Russia or whatever? And it's like, well, no, we're not saying that and no one's saying that. And that's sort of what, 
the nuances and I just want to make sure we really hammered that part home that it's like so I guess my question would be Moss like what do you think like if if you if it were up to you what would Canada and and the U.S. do um moving forward with regarding this because obviously um this war is happening obviously we're all contributing a lot of uh funding and and resources to it so so what would you see um the west do uh in moving forward to sort of you know wind this shit down or whatever well domestically um one of the things that's really egregious in canada Canada directly funds some of these OUN organizations, um, Melnikite and Banderite groups. I don't think maybe Australia, but to my knowledge, Canada is um, kind of special in that case that not only Since do these the war do... started or before even. Oh, before. Yeah, I mean, okay. I've, the for one example, the literally the OUNB newspaper in Canada has been funded by the government for over 10 years. Um, the um, so domestically, I think. Canada could defund some of these people. Um, the progressive uh, Ukrainian organization in Edmonton recently released a statement calling for just that, among other things. Um, and um, so I would like, I want to try to write an article soon that brings more attention to that and the ways in which Canada does, um, there actually is quite a bit of things to defund. Um, and people who do, you know, do uh, are pretty important play important role in glorifying some of these people uh, Nazi collaborators. Um, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, um, I think you know there's this. I assume Canada Canadian government has adopted the slogan. Also, um, in Washington and Kiev, they talk a lot about nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. When it comes to negotiations, which is completely bullshit. Um, I don't think anyone really believes that. Um, who says it? Um, I don't think Zelensky is capable of taking, you know, so that phrase essentially saying that Washington and maybe Canada too, that we'll support negotiations when Zelensky says we can, or when Ukraine, the government of Ukraine takes that first step, like it's got to be on them. Um, which is, I don't think it, Zelensky or the, anyone in the Ukrainian government is really capable of taking that first step um, for like reasons we already said. I mean, he's, I think, afraid that he'll get overthrown or worse if he does. So I think the only option is that the U.S. basically has to go do the opposite and go behind Ukraine's back and make a deal directly with Russia, which then provides Zelensky the opportunity to say, I, I had nothing to do with this. They did this, foisted this on me. That, of course... I don't think the U.S. wants to do. U.S. doesn't want to take the blame for this. Joe Biden doesn't want to go into the election um, as Mr. Ukraine War, who then also sold out the Ukrainians or whatever people would say about that. Um, so I think, I mean, I think my simple answer is that um, Western governments should wind this down by trying to negotiate something directly with Russia with or without Ukraine. Um, and it's not a nice answer that will satisfy everyone, but I think it's the only thing really to be done is um, 
to try to end it as soon as possible. I mean, there should have been negotiations before and this sure. whole thing could have been avoided. Um, but uh, some people will think that's like a naive pie in the sky type of answer that peace is impossible and stuff. But, you know, I'd like to see people explain exactly how they think Ukraine is going to reclaim every inch of territory as they say it should. Um, you know, if you support peace negotiations, you're expected to lay out an entire peace plan and have all the problems sorted out yourself. But um, if you say, you know, fight to the last Ukrainian, you don't have to explain really what you mean by that. Or, right. yeah. yeah. All right, well, Jeremy, actually, ask your last one and then. Well, we actually recently had uh, Heather McPherson uh, on the podcast, who is the foreign affairs critic for our uh, left-wing-ish party, the NDP, and is also represents a riding here, in, who actually represents my riding here in Edmonton. And she, you know, essentially made the point you're critiquing that, well, we can't, we need to just give Ukraine whatever it asks for. Like, we're not in a position to tell Ukraine how to resist occupation. And I mean, you know, she's also very good. She's very good on, like, uh, stuff like um, Israel um, treatment of the Palestinians and the war in Yemen and, uh, you know, Latin America and all that. But when it comes to Ukraine, it's, you know, there's a multi-partisan consensus. Now, my last question for you, is of course we've been alluding to it this whole time but you know i guess you could say it's an elephant in the room when you're talking about these issues people are gonna say oh well that's just russian propaganda you know putin says he wants to um denazify ukraine and um you're just playing into that and uh you know even when you're talking about this history you know people like uh I had uh, in Kingston, uh, Lubomir Lusiak, mm -hmm. right, who I think we've talked about before. Um, um, it says this is all Russian propaganda, even the, the well-documented crimes of the UPA and the, the Galicia division. That's all just made up by Russia um, to, to, you know, weaken Ukraine. And obviously these people are very powerful. Um, and I, 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 and I think maybe this past week has uh, really damaged that narrative with the international condemnation uh, Canada has had um, for applauding uh, Yaroslav Hunka in Parliament. But I'm just wondering, the, the going back to the sort of uh, smears that anyone who talks about this history is an apologist for Putin. Um, and, and those people do exist, right? I think we all know people who do have this like lazy binary thinking that because the US and NATO are bad, therefore Putin is right. Um, how do you how do you address how do you combat that 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 the these smears against people who are just having an honest look at what led to this conflict and what's going to what's prolonging it? I think the more time I spend on this stuff, the less I care about those people and what they have to say. Um, I think, um, I mean, for me, I try to present new things that people don't know about. And I'd like to think that kind of breaks a spell a little bit. Um, but, uh, or has potential to, because for example, um, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory that the OUN still exists. So it kind of entertains me when people like to 
suggests that it doesn't exist. Um, and because uh, it's very easy to prove that it does. So then it puts people in a position of um, either making that ridiculous assertion or just trying to avoid avoid it at all costs. Um, but the Hunka thing, I think, is um, special in that I think does break that spell a little bit of, oh, this is all Russian propaganda. And I think that's why a lot of these nationalist Ukrainian diaspora organizations have been so quiet about it is because they don't know how to respond to this. Their only response is to say it's all Russian propaganda. But I think they have just enough self-awareness to know that if they do that, they're walking into uh, a really, you know, that's not going to go well for them to say, because, you know, Russian, even if Russian propaganda did not convince uh, uh, Anthony Rhoda to invite this guy and did not convince, trick all everyone in the House of Commons to stand up and applaud this guy um, as a hero, not just of Ukraine, but of Canada itself. Um, so, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't really know. I feel like my only advice is you just have to keep keep pushing and presenting the truth and um i uh ignore the hate along the way <laughs> yeah i mean i guess essentially that's it i mean because there is if people want to say it's russian propaganda there's nothing you can really do to convince them that it's not but for everyone else um it's amazing you know, how people in in north america um talk about propaganda like i remember learning about german propaganda when i was you know 13 years old kind of thing and hear all these like do it's like they're they cannot wrap their brains around the fact that they've been living under western propaganda their whole life like that's what all of this whitewashed history we've ever been taught whether it's indigenous folks whether it's how we participated in wars, whether it's uh, what our own residential school systems were like or how we helped other countries uh, establish apartheid, shit like this, you know? And it's like, I just think it's, you know, you can't, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. But I mean, that guy that you mentioned, uh, Lubomir Luchik, I mean, he's as Banderite as it gets. I mean, he may not be a full sworn member of OUN, but... I think his mother was a secretary to Bandera himself, and he even got a blog deleted from the Times of Israel after he wrote an article in which he fantasized about throwing tomato soup at the Holocaust. No, that that monument. was actually that. So that was the Ottawa Citizen op-ed he wrote, where okay. he fantasizes at the end of throwing soup, and he's trying to be, you know um edgy and like making fun of environmentalists but that's still up you can still read it oh, um i in fact i reread it because i saw he was being quoted in uh global news one of our big broadcasters here um had a piece on oh uh really controversial some people say he was nazi some people say he wasn't and they quote lusik and i i gave his op-ed from last year a reread where he's saying that ukrainians should be added to the holocaust monument and he lied saying that it only talks about jews and not other victims of the holocaust um and uh there's a line in it where it's like ukrainians weren't the only victims of the holocaust a lot of jews died too which is yeah like self-parody um 
but uh but the the times of israel blog was the one i believe um about the charges against friend of the show duncan kinney um who is accused of defacing the uh nazi monuments here in edmonton um where he talked about how they have like camera footage like he was just talking about evidence in uh ongoing criminal case that he's not a party to so i think that might be why it was deleted um but uh yeah anyways we've we've ran really long Bowl's uh, gonna quit if we don't quit yeah scott like 20 minutes ago (laughs) i would just say the the fact that they're citing that luchik guy i mean i think i didn't have a very satisfying response to your question about about all these people who say everything's russian propaganda but the fact that they're referring to him i think speaks to how desperate they're getting yeah and um yeah, I mean, they were quoting him, and then it was a guy from the Weisenthal Center, which, you know, I have a lot of criticisms of their interventions on, uh, um, the, 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 you know, uh, pro-Palestinian speakers and trying to get them shut down. But on this issue, they're, they've been a uh, very uh, good source of moral clarity, um, I think. But anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out of your uh saturday afternoon to uh talk about um talk to us about this saturday evening for him now yeah and yeah (laughs) i learned like i i learned a lot and i really greatly uh appreciate the work you do um where can people find you uh you can follow me on twitter and i've got a link tree there so you can find everything else from there but uh my twitter it's just my name moss robison underscore underscore yeah, and uh, his Avi is, is, is a great picture of uh, Millhouse uh, talking about uh, the reverse vampires and our <laughs> through beautiful. the looking glass, which is sometimes, I guess, how you feel when you're drawing all these connections, right? Yeah, someone, um, someone who's supposed to be an expert on this stuff posted that, and I'm pretty sure they were mocking me with that image, so I... I turned it around and Love it. It Good works. For you. Yeah. That's how you <laughs> yeah. do it. Um, anyways, you guys, uh, folks, it's the time of the show where we thank those of our listeners who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for. So to Nicolo DiNicola, to Chris Sturwell, Sturwell to Farish Audrey, Dave Bond Miller, and Darius Beregard, thank you guys so much for everything you do. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was very informative, and this is obviously a subject that we all – I think could agree uh, we, we could learn a little bit more about. And so thank you to Moss for um, all the work that he does. Go check him out. You guys, uh, Jeremy and I will be back uh, soon with another episode and uh, thanks for kicking it with us. Have a great, uh, I guess, whatever day the fuck it is that you listen to this. All right. Love you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.